Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Hello and welcome back to Making Media. I am John Cook and I'm here with my co-host Matt Russell. A month or so ago, early October, Matt did a solo episode while I was away on honeymoon. It was a different format to normal. There was no guest. Matt took us all through his seven nuggets of media wisdom, things that he's learned from our guests over the past year that we've implemented into our own business, Colossus. I got a little bit of FOMO. I thought, I want to do this as well. So when I came back, I said to Matt, Matt, I want to take you through my nuggets of media wisdom because I think there'll be some differences as well as some overlap. So that is what the next half an hour is. It's me taking you all through the things that I have learned. In particular, this is not an exhaustive list, but things I think about a lot as a direct consequence of our conversations on making media. Really hope you enjoy it. Here goes. Okay, Matt. So I was on the beach in Zanzibar when I pulled out my phone, saw the latest Making Media episode, and I saw seven nuggets of media wisdom or something to that effect from Mr. Matt Russell. I thought this will be interesting. I gave it a listen and I thought that was really enjoyable, but I would have chosen some different ones. Had I been in person with you, the Google Sheet would have had a few corrections there with my input. So I thought, why don't I take you through the seven pieces of media wisdom I would have chosen and you can contest them or we can talk about them. And I thought it'd be a fun exercise to go through. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm curious to hear what your ideas are. What I would say is the feedback from that episode was great. I was surprised how many people liked hearing some of the ideas there. They wanted more examples of how Colossus is actually changing their business or making adjustments with all of that in mind. So I bid you with that challenge to adjust a bit as we go through these. Well, you can keep me on the straight and narrow. And if I'm not relating it back to our own business, then you can correct me. The first one I want to start with is from Om Malik, which we had a very interesting conversation with him. And his piece was about focusing on the listener. The listener is the most important person in this organization. I don't have much advice other than the one I gave to myself, which is stay true to your values. I've never written stories for the sake of writing stories. I've always written stuff which has been right. I've always served the reader before anyone else. There's a lot of media people right now who write to impress other media people or to impress their sources. I write to make sure that the readers are getting what they want. That is it. Your listeners are more important than your advertisers. The people who give you their attention, you owe them. You definitely owe them. And if you don't respect that, you shouldn't be in this business. So the reason I want to start with this one is because it's literally the root of everything that we do. And I think it's also quite easy to get confused because you have lots of important stakeholders, as Om talks about there. And your listeners in our model in particular don't pay us anything. So you very easily get confused. And I think we've got into this trap 
early on of, well, we should really be paying closest attention to the people generating dollars for the business who are our advertisers, sponsors, partners. And then you can even start thinking, well, without guests, we wouldn't have any shows. We wouldn't have anyone to sponsor those shows. Then you can start thinking very closely about your guests. But really, none of it is possible if you have no one listening at the other end. People won't pay you for anything if no one listens to it. That's where we got to pretty early on after we had this come to Jesus moment between ourselves ever since. I mean, at the top of our Google sheet for this show, we have, what are you doing for the listener in capital letters screaming at us before we go to record with anyone. And I think Ohm hit the nail on the head and that was his parting shot at us. Never forget who you're doing this stuff for. To your point of how do we relate this back to our business, it kind of gives us the license to not release things because we don't think it will be of any value to the listener. We try and respect their time as much as possible. I was doing some maths Making Media this year, we have not released one conversation that we recorded. Business Breakdowns, I think it was five that we actually had never released. And in some cases, we did multiple recordings on those that we didn't release. But then I looked and I think we've done 40 or 41 episodes of Business Breakdowns this year. On 21 of those episodes, we have done multiple recordings to get to a finished product. And if you think like the stress that you're putting guests through who have got very important lives and careers to get on with, and we're asking them to do multiple recordings, and then obviously there's a lot more work on the back end. All of that directly flows from the fact that we care the most about our listener and doing a great job for them. That's a crazy number that I didn't know. That's the first time I'm hearing that. So that tells me something about the pain and process that goes into it. There's another extension of this, which I was initially thinking about when I heard it, which is that the people that gave you their attention, you owe them something. And attention right now, it's the finite resource. Everybody talks about that. You can easily look at it as just the listener. But what's interesting for me is the listener is oftentimes our future guest or our future sponsor. Those are the people that understand the business the best, that understand the value proposition the best. And I think there's something to that where it can be a very closed ecosystem in the terms of how you generate economy around this. There's more to it than just, we want to create something that's a great product, but never even think about the business model. The business model can be driven by those listeners becoming future customers in non-obvious ways. Yeah, so true. Another caveat to my list here is that yours was much more business focused. You are the CEO of this business and much more informed when it comes to business models than I am. I'm just a lowly content guy. My list is probably a bit more tailored towards content, hence the first piece. But this is my most macro take. And it comes from Sarah Fisher, who kind of confirmed my suspicions when we spoke to her that media is a slow growth industry. I think the big lesson learned recently has been you just can't raise that much money for a slow growth business. Media by design is a slow growth industry. Media is a human intensive, labor intensive industry that grows slow. So if you raise too much money at a lofty valuation, you're going to be expected to grow very fast and continuously in order to justify that years down the line. And media is just not an industry that's poised to grow like that. Even if you're in digital media, the principles still remain. I think this was a huge learning lesson with companies like BuzzFeed. Just because you're on the internet does not mean that you are a software company that has recurring annual revenues that are really stable. That's just not what media typically is. So I think people are raising less. The valuations, I think, are much more tempered. Media really should be valued probably at most like 3x of its revenue. The key insight for me with Sarah's stuff is about labor intensity, where in a media business, stars drive the interest. In our world, that's podcast hosts. We've had tons of conversations on this show. We had one last week 
about how you spot podcast hosts for the future. How do you know someone would be good in this medium and be able to resonate with their audience and do it for a really long time? Fortunately, we had Spotify that put on a huge experiment for us, spent millions of dollars to recruit celebrities from other fields, put them into podcasting, and it did not work so well, which goes back again to Sarah's thing about you can't just buy your way into a big media business because ultimately you're forging a relationship with your audience and that comes on authenticity and trust. And people, when they ask us about kind of Colossus, and they often ask like, where do you see yourself in five or 10 years time? Like, what do you see your show roster being like? Which is a question I often struggle answering, partly because of this. You don't know who your next host is going to be because it kind of has to be the right person talking about the right thing. And you need to believe that they'll be there for a really long time because if they're not, there's no point in starting a podcast, which then lasts maybe a few months or a year even because it's really hard to generate ad dollars for that period in time and then not give anyone else the confidence, your listener or the person that's paying for the show, that you're going to be around for longer than that. The other personal point on this was it helps dealing with FOMO. When you look around, people are launching stuff on every other week and you kind of think, oh, well, we could do that. Or why haven't we done that? Or we should, maybe we should do that. And it's like, no, 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 this is more of a kind of a, a tortoise race than the hare race. And actually, you just got to stick to your principles, focus on producing great content, finding interesting people to do that with. And over time, you should be in a, a reasonable spot. I think it's counter. I think the media businesses that grow slower are actually the best out there. And oftentimes, it's the ones that you don't hear about that are the best businesses themselves. And there's something very counter to just chasing after views and everything that goes into that. It's a totally different economy that you're playing with. And I think it could be very dilutive. I have a lot I can say about the funding model and the industry as a whole. It's probably the one area that I've probably reflected the most on going from the investor world into an actual industry and having much more appreciation for industry structure after doing it. But I think some of the commentary about what is good and not good is so far off from reality that it's actually mind-blowing. The media around media can be really funny sometimes. Well, give me some examples. And maybe you went to Jacob Donnelly, friend of the show's event last week and came back and started talking a bit about kind of how multiples for media businesses and Sarah says kind of 3x on your revenues is about commensurate with what it should be. And then as soon as you add like a software component to it, then people will, will mark it up at a much more significant multiple. Talk about kind of your experience at that event and just wider your experience coming from the investment side. Yeah, it was a great event. I know I talked a lot about it beforehand, but it lived up to the expectations, the quality of the people there. They were specifically in the B2B media segment, thinking much more about the economics. And while B2B media, I think probably gets thrown around as a broad term and not every business would certainly fit into that category. I think there's certain things in terms of thinking about who your audience really is and not just treating every listener or audience member the same when thinking about the value proposition. But what was interesting about that was, yes, talking about the funding environment. And obviously, media, when you think about the model, it's advertising, which is a very cyclical business, but is oftentimes cash flow positive. You can run a, a good advertising business that generates a lot of cash flow. It depends how you're running your advertising business, but it can. Then you have your events business, and then you have your attachments that you would create around that. Events, again, you're going to see they can be highly profitable. It comes down to execution, but you're not going to get a big multiple on that for the same reasons. Once you bring in a software component, you think about all the great things about software. But right now, software is getting treated as insanely broad asset class. And over the next three years, you're going to learn that there's not a lot of businesses that classify themselves as software that probably have worse 
actual revenue sensitivity. They're very easy to churn. There's not stickiness. There's something interesting there. To me, it's like if you have a media business where you realize you have a great audience and you're not going to get the multiple in the market for that, how do you take advantage of that? And likewise, if there are subscription businesses out there that are trading at these high multiples but are not necessarily worth that, how do you figure out the opportunity in the market where you're not only generating the most amount of income for yourselves while still creating value for the rest of your ecosystem, but you're also not falling for what's going on in the funding market dictating the outcome of your business, which I think a lot of times can happen. You could just chase what the market is telling you to do without thinking about whether that's sustainable. I don't know if that gives you a good enough answer. No, that's a great answer. We're in a private business. How much weight do you place on kind of the public multiples or what's happening in the public market when in some ways it has no bearing on our business? It does in the sense that it increases supply in certain areas of the market. You just see a ton of courses, you see a ton of subscription products, you see a ton of things come to the market that all look and feel somewhat similar. And getting back to capital cycle theory, it's like there's going to be funding for those businesses. Why? Because they're better businesses. They have a subscription model, which means the revenue visibility is greater and churn is often lower and yada, yada, yada. All these things are great in concept and usually apply to the upper echelon of these businesses, then everybody tries to attach to that narrative and it falls apart. If you realize that's where the market is going, okay, where isn't the market going? And is there an opportunity to build a decent business in that segment of the market, which could just be something as simple as advertising? But what are people leaving behind? So I think it's not necessarily dictate yourself as much as I'm going to take advantage of this by raising capital or selling my business, but I might actually dictate some type of strategy to it if I can, in advantageous ways. So it could be us investing behind it within our own operations, or it could be us attaching to someone else that's doing it in the form of some type of partnership via sponsorship and understanding that they're going to see good results from it. That's what I think about. Very, very well put. So number three in my list of nuggets is kind of counter to what I just said in terms of if the business of media is really hard to scale, then the individual unit of creation is actually very easy to scale and infinitely replicable. Like if you put a podcast out there, you're just one person doing it at one time, but it can be listened to forever by millions of people. And there are obviously super low barriers to entry, which sometimes people look at and think, oh, I should go really high end because then I can differentiate myself by the equipment I'm using, the sound that's coming through your ears on a podcast or your camera with a video. But we had the world's biggest independent YouTuber come on, Doug Jumiro, earlier in the year. And the thing that really resonated with me is how simple he kept things. One of the real keys to YouTube is you don't have to produce amazingly expensive content as long as you produce good content. So people laugh at me. The production process is I have a 4K camcorder, which is relatively expensive, and then some good microphones. Other than that, <laughs> I have a $40 tripod I got on Amazon, and I have my iPhone, which is also just my personal phone. And then there's a mount for when I'm driving and the thing looks at me. That's it. That's the entire thing. I fit it into a briefcase. My goal has always been to keep it simple. And I think that a lot of YouTube channels and creators especially try to go into this direction of super high production quality, which makes everything harder. And it's not better necessarily. The audience doesn't need it. And it adds an enormous amount of complexity to a lot of shoots. I still, to this day, am super light on production. And some people don't like that. But I really think that's been a key to my longevity on YouTube, honestly. Our friends at No Laying Up, Neil, said almost exactly the same thing. And they've got the biggest podcast in golf. And his point was, people don't ask you to make movie scale productions. They don't ask you to put millions and millions of dollars into buying the fanciest cameras to go and shoot 
at the best locations with the best light, etc. You don't need a huge team of people to do this stuff. What you need is the authenticity and the story and like really finding things that resonate with your audience and then shooting them in a good enough fashion. That's exactly what Doug said as well. And the key thing, which really like I think about a lot, is if you start really high end, you come in and you've never done anything like this before, but you have an idea and you think, I'm going to shoot the lights out of this thing. I'm going to spend a bunch of money up front, get the best equipment I can possibly find and then begin. You set the bar for them of what to expect. And if it comes to a time where you either think, I don't have enough money to keep funding this, or I want to change the economics of my business, or it's just too complex bringing a team with me to do all of this stuff when I could just do it as a one-man band. You can't come down in quality easily, where like if you start at a low base with your iPhone or whatever it might be, or a very cheap microphone in our case, you can go up if your business starts to gain momentum and you really enjoy what you're doing and you start to find kind of incremental ways to improve it. It's very, very difficult to come down. So like whenever people talk to me about starting a podcast or a video or anything like that and they start talking about what equipment they should have or which platform they should be distributing on i'm like whoa, whoa, whoa like just do the bare minimum to begin with get yourself in the game once you've decided that you love it and you're starting to see some traction in the market then perhaps you can start moving up in terms of the technical capabilities of what you do for us we just use zoom to record which i think most podcasters don't you'll see most of them on riverside or any other of those things. Zoom is really simple. Everyone's been on it. Everyone uses it. It very, very rarely fails on us. And our mics are like $100 worth or $200 worth. They're very, very low cost. So that helps the margins of our business. More than anything, it keeps things super simple. It can dictate where you end up in the market. So let's say you want to think about doing something. Audio versus video is massive difference. The quality in audio is noticeable, but the threshold or the minimum spend to reach that quality is much different than the minimum spend to reach that quality in video. Now, if you do and are intent on doing something in video or something that requires some type of visual aesthetic, I think it's super important if you're not going to meet the quality bar to focus on substance. And that's why Doug can do it because he has the substance, he does the work, and then he goes in and he delivers what he delivers. But you know that you're getting the quality and substance in terms of what he's actually delivering to you and saying to you. So I think that's another key distinction. I think you're right. People just jump in and spend way too much. And I think you're seeing you could spend a million dollars on sets in Masterclass. And I'm curious to see what happens to that business model. But to me, it feels like they're spending a substantial amount of money to monetize via consumer. And that probably needs to change, but that's going to be really painful if they change the production quality of those sets. I actually sent an invite to Masterclass the other day to come on Making Media to talk about that kind of thing. So hopefully they pick this up and take the bait and we can come on and have a good discussion about it. The other like fascinating thing for me is the more you dig in and around these creators that have got really big, a lot of them still do their own editing. I don't think Doug does now, but for a really long time, he did editing for his own videos. He didn't say he loved it, but there's something about having the control over it and making sure your product is as polished as possible. David Senra in our world is a really good example of someone who just like will not let go of the end-to-end production process. And I really admire that and I totally get it as well. It's all rests on his shoulders and he cares so much about what he puts out that he is willing to put in the extra work to make sure it is exactly what he wants. All right, moving on. Number four. And this is actually maybe the thing that I've changed my mind on the most over this year. And that's the importance of newsletters to media businesses and particularly our, our own business. And our conversation with Lenny, which was pretty recent, really underlined exactly why. The newsletter is all. That's what I've learned. Everything I do, the newsletter is the source of everything. So with the podcast, it became like a top 10 technology podcast. 
only because of the newsletter, because I have the distribution. People know there's a new episode every time with the job board. Every newsletter issue has like, hey, looking for a job or hiring? Check out my job board. And then with the community, it comes from people subscribing to the newsletter. So you'd think there'd be like some kind of flywheel of this drives this. Newsletter drives everything. Honestly, I was really expecting him to say, oh, the newsletter serves this purpose. The podcast does this for our super fans and the community and the job board work in these ways to kind of build this flywheel of a business for me that then churns through um, the years and grows. But he did not say that. The newsletter is the epicenter of everything. Everything goes through there. I'd say historically, we thought, maybe this is just the me thought, but the royal we thought of our newsletter as kind of like the sideshow to the main event, which is the podcasts that we put out. And I would say like there is some degree of that relationship, but it's much more even than I probably thought to begin with. And a number of different reasons. One, the written word is way easier to share than podcasts, which are notoriously difficult, so it's hard for them to grow, but it's easier for the written word and newsletter to grow. We've seen massively this year that the power of the algos can have over your business. Twitter, the best example this year of something that worked well for us in terms of growth and has become way less effective over the year. And so, okay, where's the best thing that we own direct relationship with our listeners that we have power over and it's not going to change month on month or year on year. And it got to a head where I thought, historically, we put the newsletter together kind of as a system. It was a thing to do at the end of the week to recap our week's work. So we had a bunch of people put different elements of this together. We'd stitch it together, make sure it looked okay and send it out on a Sunday evening. Whereas now I think it needs much more creative control by one person. And I think this kind of gets to the limits of scalability in a media business as well, because you need a voice behind it. And I think it helps to have one person's voice. So I've tried to take a bit more control over the newsletter again. You can make jokes when jokes are appropriate. You can be really serious when that's appropriate. You can kind of live and die every week with your audience and like make your voice resonate, which is much harder to do when you're trying to build a system to lighten the load on everyone. And so we'll see whether it works. Taking back a bit more control over this thing because it's an important asset and figuring out ways to grow it more than we have done in the past will be really interesting. And it's not something at the beginning of the year, if you said, Dom, can you take this back on? I'd have been like, no, thanks. It's not something I particularly enjoy doing. But I think it's really important and something that has become even more important as we've gone through this process. So I think you're right that the newsletter itself for any media business represents one form of direct access to your audience that doesn't exist there's some of the other mediums like podcasting. There's some opaqueness to the data that we get. And with the newsletter, you can control a lot of that information. That conference that I was at, there was a lot of talk about first-party data. I oftentimes think there's a little bit too much talk about first-party data. But it was very clear that it was the most important thing. There's a lot of products around it. A lot of businesses just built around collecting that first-party data. And there's a lot of changes <laughs> on the internet, which are making that more and more relevant. With the newsletter, I do think for our business, it is very important in terms of the tool that it can become, but it is very different than the podcast audience in the sense that maybe it's one-tenth, maybe even one-twentieth the size of our podcast listener base. So you don't get the full spectrum of people that are listening and I think are, are dedicated listeners, which is the tricky thing to me. But that said, I think the closer you can get to your audience the better. And that is one of the best ways that you can push things on them that you just can't do with audio. And hopefully, you know, after I've been writing it a few months, we'll be at kind of parity and 20x growth. I will say, I get a lot of comments on it now. And I still look at people with a skeptical eye. <laughs> are you just saying this and you don't actually consume our content? I can usually catch on to people who are like, yeah, and I love your newsletter. And I look at them for a little while. I'm like, what do you love about our newsletter? 
because <laughs> yeah. I don't say that I love our newsletter and it's our newsletter. Briefed me that you've read it. Well, people are referencing specific sections in it and that makes me say that there's been progress. I didn't hear too many people saying I love our newsletter last year. That's for sure. Time will really tell. But I think it's an important thing to try. So we're giving it a shot. All right, moving on. Subscriptions. Simon Owens, I think early to middle of this year, came on and started talking to us about subscriptions, which was very insightful. And we'll play that clip now. Putting off the launch of subscriptions for as long as possible is priority number one. Advice number two is building something that is different. So many creators and media companies go in and say, oh, I'm just going to produce one free newsletter a week, and then I'm going to produce two other newsletters a week, but lock those behind a paywall. A lot of news consumers, they don't want extra content from you. They already are getting way too much content. Just providing more content is not really going to move the needle for them in terms of getting them to convert. What can you create for subscribers only that are your super fans that services them specifically? Axios did this where they didn't just start locking content behind a paywall. They kept all their free content. It's exactly the same as it was before. They created specific niche products that their super fans would want to subscribe to. I would wager this is probably the thing that you and I talked the most about over our two and a bit years of trying to run Colossus in terms of we have advertising money. It's very good. We love our partners. What else could we do to support the business, build a diversified income stream subscriptions? Naturally, it comes up events you talked about earlier, other ways of doing this. How could we as a business come up with a subscription product that people would pay for? And in the, the clip, Simon talks about it has to be different. He also talks about like you want to build your audience first and then turn the subscription spigot on. But the key insight for me is that it has to be very different. And he mentioned Axios's product, how they really went after a very targeted person we would probably have dollars to spend behind a subscription. And we've talked on this show about how good it can be if you can get your corporate customers to pay with their corporate card, because that <laughs> takes some of the natural churn out of a business when you've got people paying with their own money. But we've really struggled to find something that is differentiated to the content we do, because we spent all our time producing this free stuff that whenever we think of, okay, what could we ask people to pay for? It never seems better than the thing that we give away for free. I think like that's always been kind of our stumbling block. You've hit it on the head. And I think there's so many obvious things that people ask, well, why aren't you doing this? Or why aren't you doing that? And the question is, would that be any better than what we give away for free? And is that just purely a money-making exercise, which is a very important part of business. I'm not going to be somebody who's just purely like, you can't think about the dollars, but it just needs to be good and different. And the most important thing to me about where do we see ourselves in five years the vision to me is we are still doing the things that we're already doing with these podcasts. And I think it would be a massive crime to blow up this business and not be able to do those podcasts because you're chasing some shitty course product. Now, I'm not saying all courses are shitty, but there are a lot of low dangling fruits that don't actually feel differentiated. Customers would probably buy them up front, but then they would turn fast. And it's like, what are you going to do? So what's an extension of that? I agree. You want to build a massive audience so that you can then sell into them. It's maybe one of the more obvious insights with the biggest question mark as to how can it be different? What's going to be different? And who is that niche in your audience that is going to buy it? And I think from a personal point of view, it would pain me so much. I don't think I could do it. Charging people for something I don't think is worth the money. You have to get past that threshold on a personal level. Would I want my mom or my dad, if they were investors, to pay for this thing? 
the answer has to be yes. Otherwise, I'll find it very, very difficult to go to market with it. Second to last, and this probably gets into kind of the softer side of what we do. But at the end of our conversation with Neil Schuster of No Laying Up, I asked him, what would surprise people about what you think about on a daily basis the most? And he had an answer, which I thought was really interesting about sort of team communication. He said, the only thing I'd reiterate is just the internal team communication. It's very subtle. I joke about it with my partner. You're never going to solve it, the interpersonal stuff. It's a forever war of getting along, respecting each other. But I think the ability for us to have tough, direct conversations as a group or one-on-one has been the best thing for us. When things get bigger, things can get weird. And if you just identify it, the earlier you do and be very clear about things, it's super simple, but it's not easy. And it can be uncomfortable, but it's so important. It's like the only thing that matters. Are you getting along? Are you having a good time? Are you not burned out? If those things are not in line, nothing else matters. There are some slight differences. Their team is very much front and center of the podcast and the business there. Whereas we are probably a bit more behind the scenes. Obviously, that's one reason why we launched Making Media. It's kind of a self-preservation act. We can't get rid of the stars of Making Media easily. Whereas if we're behind the scenes, no one knew about us. And then maybe that's easier to cast us aside. But I think this point is really, really important. And I guess one of the reasons is we're totally remote and not just remote, but also on different sides of the Atlantic in certain cases. We're also working to a media schedule, which can be quite demanding. Like you have to have shows out at certain times in the week because that's when your listeners expect them. And that consistency is really, really important. That can come with its own challenges in terms of the things that we do to get the shows ready for release. And that can mean that people are toiling in their own offices, in their own space by themselves. And the rest of the team may not have any idea. Coming up with ways to re-energize a team by being in person or just having ways to kind of reach out and make sure that everyone is in a decent spot most of the time is super important. And I don't think we have a perfect answer here, but this year we definitely have done better at getting together in person more often, making sure our Friday meetings are fun, not just work-related. It kind of has been a reminder to me just to make sure we're checking in with other people to see how they're getting on more on a personal level because it's a classic if you're working remotely and you turn on Zoom for a meeting... You sort of feel like no one was really asking how your weekend was, or you feel if you spend that first five minutes talking about stuff other than the title of the meeting, you feel bad about it. So that's actually part of this. And we should definitely pay respect to people's lives as well as what they're doing for the business. I commend you on this. I do agree. It was probably one of the things that we were worst at over the past few years, which is probably surprising to hear from the outside. But you have taken a leadership charge with that. And I do agree that is beneficial massively. There's zero loyalty created when you have just a pure transactional environment that is on steroids in a remote work environment. You know, if things are treated where there isn't small talk, it's going to be very transactional. It's going to be like, okay, well, yeah, I got what I need out of you and now I'm good. And I think most people in leadership roles think, yeah, it's fine. That's what you get paid to do, yada, yada, yada. And it's like, well, it's a free market and those people can leave very easily. And I think... Yes, the mission stuff got overdone. People lost track of economics that are actually required to make businesses run and the hard work that's required. I think we checked the box on all the hard work stuff. So then it does come down to, okay, what's the humanizing nature of all this? And it's super important without it. I know I haven't been the best steward of the cultural thing over the past two months, really, since the beginning of the summer. That's not true. It's important. Nobody likes the constant negativity when it comes through. 
it's just funny how, how much harder it is in a remote setting. It's just stuff you would naturally, when you walk into the office in the morning, say, hey, how are you? How was your night? How was your weekend, etc." But then to do that when you're remote, because the first thing you want to say is, hey, have you done this? Rather than like, oh, how are you? Fingers get tired typing. You want to use be as efficient as possible with your keystrokes. And then last but not least, this is something that I probably bang the drum on the most and is probably the most frustrating for people to listen to. But it's just, I think, one of the only moats in our game is duration, staying in the game for as long as possible. And everything that we've talked to, I think, is a part of this in terms of being simple, making sure you're not doing anything more than you have to other than when it comes to producing the highest quality stuff you possibly can. And then it's being consistent and putting time in. And we had an amazing conversation with... David Law of the Tennis Podcast, who did their podcast for five plus years. But I'm yet to hear anyone talk about this as passionately and as well as our friend David Senra, who was on the New Arts of Investing podcast earlier this week. And he went on his famous tirades about doing podcasting or whatever it is in media for as long as possible and doing it without getting paid. I will not be able to do it him justice. We'll play you out with this clip. I didn't do it because I thought it was going to be a job. I didn't get paid to do it for years. I did it for two years paying to do it, literally paying to do it. People are like, oh, would you do this for free? Yeah, I did it for free for years. And then I decided, I read, I'm going to hopefully indoctrinate you guys. Go to paulgram.com, go through his essays, pick the ones that you think are interesting. I read one that changed my life. It's how to do what you love. And you see that it changed my life because I was doing the podcast starting in 2016. My upload schedule, which is public, you can see it, was very intermittent. And then I remember my entire household is asleep. My daughter's asleep. My wife's asleep. I'm literally reading sitting up with my laptop in bed. It's completely dark. And I'm rereading Paul Graham's essay, How to Do What You Love. And I snapped. And I'm like, man, I just had this relentless self-belief that I was like, I know I love podcasting. I don't know if I could turn it into a business. I wasn't making any money on it at that point. I believe if I stop everything I'm doing, if I'm willing to dedicate 100% of my time to this, if I'm willing to work seven days a week on this, I'm willing to bet that I can figure out how to turn this into a business. And you see this, me snap, because you can go back and you see... Yeah, he's just uploading randomly. And then 2018, I think it might've been August, 2018. It's every week to now. I have not missed one single week. I completely snapped. I was like, I'm willing to do everything else. I stopped doing everything else. And so what happens from 2018 all the way to 2020, it took me two years before the podcast made enough money just to cover my living expenses. So people are like, oh, would you do this for free? No, you didn't understand. From 2018 to 2020, I was literally paying to do it. Every month I'm looking at my savings account. Oh shit. I got a wife and a kid. Oh, I'll drive Uber. I'll get a job. I'll do this at night. I was like, I didn't give a damn. I was like, there's no way. And then now it's like an unbelievable business. It's going to make my unborn grandchildren rich. What a good note to finish on there, Dom. I enjoyed hearing your nuggets of wisdom. I think we overlap on quite a bit of this. We'll have to revisit these again in the future and see how much we actually apply these to the business itself. Mine probably, again, more business. Yours more cultural slash mindset of a business. They all hold true. The yin and yang of a business partnership. That's what I call that. <laughs> so that's right. Amen. I was going through our conversation with Ohm to find the clip for the first point here. And in that conversation, after one of the questions we asked, or it may have been in the debrief, we said, we need to get Brian Curtis on because he does these podcasts, the One Perfect Stories, where he gets these people on. And I want to make sure that he gets out what he thinks ahead of time because we had struggled with that a little bit. Lo and behold, last week we had Brian Curtis on and I thought that's a full circle moment for making media. That's very cool. And I forgot that it happened, as you were saying on another podcast earlier this week with Tyler Cho, our friend. It's amazing to have these things written down in real time so you can go back and check and see where you were right and where you were wrong. Mostly wrong for me. It's a fun exercise, nonetheless. 
Well, funny you mentioned that, actually. Patrick just interviewed Brad Jacobs yesterday. That Invest Like the Best will be coming out soon. And when I first interviewed to join Colossus, Patrick asked, what three guests would you recommend I bring on Invest Like the Best? And Brad Jacobs was one of the three. No way. Jeff Green from the Trade Desk, regardless of what you think of the valuation of that business, (laughs) Jeff Green is quite the impressive person, was another one who has since come on. And number three was not on Invest Like the Best, but was on Acquired yesterday, Charlie Munger. No way. (laughs) Two out of three. And was funny to see Charlie actually on a podcast yesterday at the same day that Patrick was hosting Brad. So incredible. Yeah. Maybe that means it's time for me to leave the media industry. I don't know. (laughs) Maybe that's the full circle. You peaked. I like how you're taking credit for Acquired's good work there. That was a phenomenal conversation. They managed to get Charlie on the podcast, which I have to confess, I never thought I'd see that day. Same. That was a bold prediction in your interview. Anyway, thank you for sticking with me through my seven nuggets. I think we covered a bunch. We've been through a lot this year and we'll see you all next week.